Charles Fearless Balky, a great talent in the early days of motorcycle racing, whose career was cut short, like far too many from those days, by a tragic accident. History is full of extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape our culture and created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week, we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeart, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, your fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold's been a busy summer. We've yes. both been tied up with a lot of projects. Yes. Uh, one of the things you've been doing is a history ghost walk or ghost tour of Perryville, Kentucky. Yes. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, uh, this is for Main Street, Perryville, and uh, what we're trying to do is uh, it's a fundraising thing, and, of course, I and some others, my brother and some other folks volunteer, and uh, we lead a ghost walk and a history ghost walk. It's part history and part ghost, uh, and... Um, it's been real successful. It doesn't cost a whole lot. I think ten to fifteen dollars a ticket, um, and it's really, really helping them. Uh, the last one we did, we had ninety people. Ninety. Uh, yes, we had ninety people, and we had one tour guide. We was going to have three. We usually split up in you know twenty five, thirty. It's the largest right. group, but we had one guy tour guide had uh, somewhat of an emergency, couldn't come, so we had to split up everybody into forty five, which. It was a little bit awkward, but we made it work good. Uh, we did our best, and I think people enjoyed it. And um, we're, uh, like I said, it's a it's a worthwhile thing. We're trying to preserve Perryville. Um, it's uh, it's a challenge, you know. Funding for uh, historic buildings and things just doesn't come from the government anymore, so it has to be done. And other, we other we have means. part of that uh, tour on video. Yes, it's on mm -hmm. a tick on my TikTok page, and it's also on Facebook. So you can go to Uncommon right. History on Facebook and, and watch the first 10 minutes of that tour. Right. And it was really neat. Yeah, I know you were there, and there were several of my friends were there, and the word's getting out. You know, it's fun, and uh, it's always more fun uh, after dark, and the houses are lit up. We got to go in two houses. We were we were scheduled to go in three, but uh, one of them was the funeral home, um, which uh, they had a body, and so that didn't work. Yeah, that definitely been the wrong time to yeah, go to the funeral home. It not been a good time to go, no. Uh, so we uh, we had to, to, to change plans, but we'll get to do that again. And if any, any of our listeners would like to uh, to go, just get on Main Street, Perryville. I, I think it's downtownperryville.com. Downtownperryville.com. I believe uh, it's their web address. Sign up, and you'll see a schedule of the upcoming events we're going to have. We're coming up on our commemoration in October, and it's the anniversary of the Battle of Perryville, which is the first weekend in October. Well, let me ask you this, why, mm -hmm. since you brought it up. Do you think we could find a location maybe where we could do a podcast kind of live in front of the public if they wanted to come and maybe have a chance for them to ask questions, ask you questions about the parable, uh, the Battle sure. of Parable? Sure, we, we could do maybe the HP Bottom House Porch. Well, it'll probably um, need to be inside with the wind and mics and stuff. Yes, or if we, well, could find. We, we could possibly do the inside of the house. We'll talk to Alan Howeller, who owns it. Um, we could do uh, the old uh, Carrick Parks house downtown, possibly. There's several no, places. Yeah, as long as it has power do. and 
Yeah, well, we, we can, can plug get in. power in there. We can run some cords if we need to. Yeah. But, yeah, it can happen, sure. I think no the problem. bottom's house would be good. We could probably. Yeah, yeah. Because that's right out next to the battlefield. That is on the battlefield, center of the battlefield. Yeah, and, so uh, maybe you can. And uh, maybe we could do a, you know do some shots of the inside of the house and show people the bullet holes and the blood stains on the floors. And that That, that is that a neat house stuff. to go through. It is a neat house. Because, uh, I mean, it was right in the middle of the battle. So. Right. Yeah, maybe you can get that worked out, and, and we can put it out uh, on our next podcast and kind of give people more information yeah, if they want to they wanna come or something. I have much fun as people do, I believe. I honestly do. Uh, I never get tired of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot that's of people just... that ask me questions, and I'm like, man, that's a Harold question. You know, that's yeah. you got to ask Harold. But I think it would be a good opportunity for folks, you know, come in. It's a big – it's a 160th celebration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a big event. Um, you'll get to see the actual reenactment on the park and, and some different things going on downtown. Parable as well, a lot of booths, mm. food vendors. Right. Um, do, are they going to do the, where they do uh, over on Merchants Row where they have the, the battle there, the little skirmish? I, I don't know the, in, the town schedule, but I do know that uh, they have several reenactors coming to the park. I've heard a 1,000 so far has already signed up. I don't know that to be official. But, you know, it's the 160th, so it's going to be a— If you love history and you love Civil War right. history, this is the event to, right, to come right. to. So and the park is, has gotten so much bigger than a lot of people have. Uh, if you haven't been in the last three or four or five years, you'll be amazed how big the park is now. Oh, you know, yeah. it's up to 1,500 acres and yep. a lot of natural habitat, wildlife, all kinds of reasons to come. Awesome. Well, we'll, we'll try to put that together. So what do you have for us at Today in History? Today in History. This is— Brian, I have to be honest with you, this is, this is kind of boring, you know, I mean, but it is what it is, right? <laughs> August of, I'm going to do two days, because we always said two's better than one. Exactly. Yeah. So August the 1st, 1956, the Kentucky Turnpike, 1956 now, I was one year old, the Kentucky Turnpike was opened between Louisville and Elizabethtown, Kentucky. It was the first section of the completed north-south road connecting the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico. I haven't heard of such. Did you know that? No. I didn't know that. No. Now, in, what's it called? What's it named today? Ah, what is I sixty five? Would that be I sixty five? Yeah, I guess it would be. I sixty five. Yep. So, uh, and also today in, or excuse me, August the first in nineteen sixty two, Happy Chandler was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, A.B. Happy Chandler was twice governor of Kentucky, and he was also uh, in the U.S. Senate, and he gave up his Senate seat to be commissioner of baseball. Yeah. And, you know, he was one that pushed for the first uh, Negro players to be in the professional baseball. Very famous Kentucky. Yes, very famous Kentucky. And he was commissioner of baseball from 1945 to 1951. And August the 2nd, this is a real uh, exciting one. President Chester Arthur and several other federal officials attended the Cotton Exposition in Louisville, Kentucky. Big time. I guess that replaced the, what's, what's now the Farm Machinery Show in Louisville. The Cotton Exposition. <laughs> I didn't know we had cotton in Kentucky. No, I didn't either. I don't know what that's about. Well, it could be because it was a port city. Maybe had something to do with it. I, I really had a lost because I, I just don't know. I, I didn't. I know that there was cotton attempted to grow here. But you know, back in pioneer times, I think we did a podcast about uh, early Kentucky, uh, Danville, Kentucky. You remember yeah. the one we did on the poet Tom Johnson yeah, Jr., yeah, the drunken poet drunken of Danville. Poet. Yeah, I think we talked about it, them trying to establish some type of cotton business that failed back in the early times. But uh, yeah, it's that's a strange one. Now, uh, the uh, inventor of the Thompson submachine gun in 1916 
Colonel John Thompson got his patent and developed this Thompson submachine gun. Do you know what that is? Yes, I've actually shot one. Have you actually shot mm-hmm. one? Well, I haven't, but uh, that's the one that in, we see the Roaring Twenties and the gangsters and yeah. John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. And, and it's, a uh, it, it, it's a very unique experience. That's uh, the weapon of choice yeah. for them. That's yeah. a still a very lethal gun, I would think. It, oh, it is. Yeah. It, it is. It's, and it's, it's fired a, fully automatic or semi-automatic. Yeah. And I did fully auto, and it was fun. And that's what brought on a lot of our modern gun laws today is yeah. from those days of people, you know, using those. In yeah, during Prohibition, they, Prohibition. I mean, those, yeah, there was, you know, uh, turf wars and everything else. That was the gun of choice. And Al Capone, John yeah. Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, so they, they had to enact some gun laws so the average person couldn't have a firearm like that because right. it was so deadly. Right, right. All righty. Uh, have you got anything before we start on our... That's it. I'm, I'm, what, what is our subject tonight? Well, I haven't told you, have I? No. Okay. This is from a book called Fearless, Lord of the Mur- Murder Drone. I'll say that again. Fearless, the Lord of the Murder Drone. It was written by Rick and uh, Lane Onstat. And uh, these folks... In the movies, didn't it star Mel Gibson? No. No, that was a Thunderdome. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's different, Thunderdome. D- different one. Well, let, this is a little different. Now, we're going to do something a little different, folks, out of the box. I don't want to bore you all with just Civil War or Pioneer History or John Dillinger or whatever. I wanted to come up with something different, very different, and I hope you like it. And uh, so we're going to we're gonna talk about motorcycle racing, of all things. Oh, man. And I've never owned a motorcycle. Well, I had one antique when I sold it here a while back, but I've never really owned or ridden motorcycles in my life. I'm not a motorcycle guy. Never have been. Don't know why. I just have never. That's just never one of the things that I did. But um, this is a, a story of a couple people who found a book. Or excuse me. They were going through an estate uh, that uh, the uh, parents of this fellow named Bill, who I don't have his last name, uh, in Bourbon County, Kentucky. They were going through the attic. They said it was a rainy day, and and. You know, it, I can just picture this in my mind, and I'm going to try to describe this so that our listeners can kind of think like I am. It was a rainy day. It was dreary. Um, the attic, the reason they may have picked a, a rainy day is because attics are usually cooler and not as hot uh, if, it, if it was in the summertime. And they looked over in the corner of this attic, and they saw this treasure chest. And it was just a big old chest. and had a lot of odd antiquity stuff piled around it and books. Uh, it was uh, antique bicycle, uh, baseball gloves, uh, old wooden chairs, things like that, things that people put in attics and forget they have them. Yeah. And amongst these things was this large trophy. And Bill's asked, you know, his wife was there with him. She asked him, said, do you know anything about that? And he said, well, I think it's my uncle Balky's. All right, sorry for the interruption, but uh, we had the air kick on, and we were picking it up through the mic, so we had to uh, stop the podcast and, and begin again. So, Harold, pick up. We don't care where you were at. Yeah, uh, anyway, so they find this uh, this memorabilia in the corner of, of it, and the, in it was a trophy that had, a, uh, that he said my father had told me that it was a real important part of motorcycle history. And it was from Elgin, Illinois, and it was America's first national motorcycle road race. 
So in this, under it was a scrapbook, and it was filled with newspaper clippings and photos. Uh, Captions like, Blake sweeps five wins in a row. Fearless Blake is unstoppable. Then the headline, Dead Man Rides at Murder Drome, claims two more, 35 uh, partially injured, three dead at track. Death toll rises to eight at Murder Drome. Wow. So those Murder Dromes were what they were. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, and that was where the they were kind of in an arena, and it was a circle of wood, right. and they would race, gonna, and they would kind of get up on their right. side there with the centrifugal force and everything. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that in a little more detail here later. But a velodrome is where they raced bicycles, and a motordrome is where they raced motorcycles. Okay. They were racing bicycles before they invented right. the motorcycle, and they were smaller, shorter board tracks with deep banks. Yeah. And so, anyway, that I make that distinction. So, Bill said his father told him about the motordromes. The racetracks were built of wood. Uh, this, this, this scrapbook was one of the last remaining stories of a motorcycle rider of that era okay it was put together by his wife and it was every newspaper clipping of every event that she could get in some several different newspapers the same event and it was just a scrapbook of his life basically his short life wow um the motor drones had began and they actually started racing it they asked Henry Ford one time, said, when did you start racing cars? He said, well, when the second one came off the assembly line. <laughs> so, it, you know, that's something that they've, racing yeah. is just part of mechanical devices. I mean, right. it's just, <laughs> uh, so they, uh, there's always been a demand for speed. And it seems like, and I know when I was young, I don't know if guys are like this today as much as we were, but it was part of our life too. You know, we've. We always wanted that hot car, and, you know, of course, car shows and things are popular now as they ever were. Um, but the goal was simple for a racer, and it was to get across the line first with the most reliable and inexpensive means of transportation. Now, the, the, the manufacturers of these motorcycles knew real quick that if you race on Sunday and you win on Sunday, you sell on Monday. Yeah. Same way with the cars. So that was a big part of this history was these companies immediately, as soon as they started making motorcycles, wanted them to go faster than their competition and be more reliable. Uh, They were competing for that almighty dollar, and that pushed them to to do things that was a little risky, let's face it. As soon as the industry began uh, racing as part of the scene almost overnight, I mean, it was – it just seemed like as soon as they invented a motorcycle, it wasn't a, a few months till they were a big race schedule somewhere. Uh, the driver was obviously a part of that success. I mean, he had to be, him and the machine had to be one. Right. Uh, they were looked at today. I mean, you, well, Brian, you're too young to remember. I remember when John Glenn was launched off Cape Canaveral and uh, into space, you know, and it was, he was a daredevil in a sense. Yeah. He was an early pioneer. These guys, no one had ever gone 100 miles an hour before. Yeah. You know, and they, they were starting to go speeds that no one had ever seen before. Now, there wasn't any machines back then that would go 100 miles an hour. The motorcycle was probably the first right. to go that fast. Uh, the earliest motorcycles they were more like bicycles with motors on them. Now, some of these guys, they didn't have brakes. Can you imagine? <laughs> 
no <laughs> brakes. There's an Englishman that came over by the name of Jack Prince. Now, he himself was a bicycle racer, and he'd gotten older, and he couldn't, you know, right. his, his days of that were over. So he'd, he'd built the velodromes. Now he got into the motordromes. He began to build bigger and larger tracks. From a third of a mile to a mile and a half was a typical circumference of a track. From a third, like I said, I'm sorry, there was three million board feet of lumber in the typical board track. Man. And I assumed the typical would be somewhere between a third and a half, one mile and a half. I'd say a mile and a half track would even be much more than that. Do you know how many nails it took to put that together? A bunch. 16 tons. Oh, my. 16 tons of nails. Can you imagine? No. The cost of about $100,000, and this was in around 1906, 7 or 8, somewhere in there. Um, they were built, and you want to guess how fast they could build them? You know, I, I would say pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. This Couple. really surprised me. In two and a half to three weeks. Now, I don't think a mile and a half track would take probably longer than three yeah. weeks. It might take six weeks, but that's still fast that, to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking about hand saws. You know, electric saws. You, you did everything by hand. And but all. they had a lot more labor. They had a know? lot of labor. They had a lot of guys, and they were organized, and they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Every man had a job. Yeah. And so they had, had gotten it down to a, a pretty good science. They were usually built on the outskirts of a town where cheaper land and plenty of space. Right. So, and the crowds would come. And, and you know, the typical crowd, do you know how many people would come? Well, I guess it would depend on the population of the, whatever town they were next to, but um, I'd say a few thousand. Well, the typical crowd was 10,000 people, and they drew people from – they take trains for two or three days to get to see a big race. Wow. It was a, it was a big thing. Did you know that in 1910, board track racing had surpassed football and baseball as the number one spectator sport? Didn't know that. Yeah. Well. Now, the problems they had with the tracks were that they were exposed to the elements, of course, rain, which made the wood swell, which made the wood shrink, which made the wood crack, which caused splinters. Yeah. (laughs) And that was a constant problem. So if you didn't, if you hit a splinter, it could puncture a tire. Now, you you say, oh, that's no big deal. Well, you're going 100 or 80, 90 miles an hour, and you puncture a tire with the old-type tires they had, the hard rubber stuff they had. That 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 was almost like suicide i mean it was it was crazy um the tires the riders went down hit the splinters now they got oil see those old engines don't have the some of them even had lost oil engines that 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 would they were designed to lose oil yeah but they would lose oil and get on a slick board and you can you can imagine how slick that was so they would scrub the track down with lye lye soap basically to clean the oil off but it also damaged the wood, which caused it to wear more, <laughs> which caused it to rot faster. But then they would they would throw sand on the track and other uh, cinders and other things, uh, not cinders but ash, yeah. to absorb oil and everything. You know how steep the banking was and some of the most – the oh. average one was like – go ahead. No, I, I don't know how many degrees Well, I think a, a Talladega Raceway is like 30-degree banking, 33 degrees. This banking was as high as 60 degrees. <laughs> That's just crazy. Incredible. Which means you can go faster, but also means the centrifugal force will throw you farther. Yeah. Uh, 
there was there was a driver named Hasha who lost control of his motorcycle going 90 miles an hour. And he went airborne, hitting four young boys and killing them instantly. And along with the, the motorcycle went up into the crowd, and after it hit the boys, it went up in the crowd. They were standing along the rail, and it killed him, and the ten other spectators were uh, injured. And then I think it was all in all there was eight people killed, and that was in New York, New, York, New Jersey and mm. you know, like 1908, 1907. So then two days later, a fellow named Curtis Edwards, who's no kin to me, was killed. Uh, and then a, a few months later, uh, three other uh, drivers were killed in different tracks around the country. And it was not only um, dangerous from flying debris, but, Brian, they had gas tanks that if the motorcycle flew up into the crowd, the gas tanks would explode and burn people. And... Um, it was a, it was a real it was just a a very very dangerous thing. Now in Kentucky we had one track that I've found so far. Now I haven't finished doing research on this, and I don't know if I'll do another podcast on it or not. But if I find something interesting, we might. But in Ludlow, Kentucky, Lagoon not Laguna Lagoon Raceway, part of Ludlow Lagoon Amusement Park in Ludlow, Kentucky, as I said. Uh, they built a track to accommodate about 8,000 spectators. Now, where's Ludlow? I'm not even I think it's up around Cincinnati, northern Kentucky. Okay. I think it is. Covington area, somewhere up in there. In July 1913, um, a racer lost control of his motorcycle, veered into the stands, and it killed him. Uh, But he hit a gas lamp, which caused a panic in the stands because the flames, you know, it burst into flames. And the panic killed nine people, mm. and over a hundred were treated for burns. Uh, so you can see lawsuits abounded here. You know this this was getting to be a problem. I'll tell you the result of this later. But anyway, you can see this is building to be a problem. Now, now we're going to get to our subject, our, our person that we wanted to to focus the story about, and his name was Charles Balky, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. B a l k e. Okay. Is that how you'd pronounce that? Yeah, sounds sounds good to me. Well, he was born in Ty- Taylor, Texas, and how his kinfolks got to Kentucky, I do not know. And I don't know how this stuff ended up in an attic in Bourbon County, Kentucky. But he was 15 years old in 1906 when his family moved to Los Angeles, California, and he bought his first motorcycle there, and he paid $175 for it. It was a, a quarter and three horse, excuse me, one and three quarter horse belt-driven Indian. Huh. You know, it, it very primitive motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, he seemed to be, though, this kid seemed to be a natural. You know, there's people that take to things like a duck to water. He was one of those that as soon as he got on that motorcycle, it was like he had found his calling. In February 1907, at 17 years old, he entered his first race. And his first race was a half, and he finished a half a lap ahead of the second place bike. Huh. Now here's a kid never raced before, but when he got out there, he just he just but said the difference between him and a lot of them is he didn't he didn't let up. He didn't slow down at turns. You know, he just kept pushing it. He opened his throttle up and just held it open, which most people didn't have the nerve to do. And I've been told by I know a friend of mine who has raced in the past, um, and was was somewhat successful in small racing, but he I asked him, I said, well, How come you never got to the next level? 
He said, I don't have that extra nerve you need to push a car in a corner that you think you may not be able to, to come out. He said, you've got to have that, and I don't have it. He said, I just couldn't make myself do it. He said, I was just too cautious. He said, call me chicken, call me whatever. But he said, there's just a strong constitutional cautiousness yeah. <laughs> that I is not going to push. I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, of course, as you get older, you get more and more cautious. But as this kid, you know, 17 years old, he didn't know what fear was. Uh, he gained a reputation really quick. Uh, he raced in little small tracks all over the country, some of them dirt. Uh, he was surprised um, that when he raced a lot of races, guys would kick one another, smack hit one another. <laughs> Anything for the advantage. Exactly. It was not as – it wasn't just, you know, there was some dirty stuff going on there. He learned real quick how to deal with guys, you know, at, at that young age. Uh, but his wife, future wife, who was his girlfriend that he met there, um, she stuck the name on him Fearless Blake, or excuse me, Balky, Fearless Balky. So that stuck with him, and the newspaper headlines and all. Uh, it was uh, that was that was his name from that point on. His first big test, uh, though, was against a racer named Jake DeRoser. Uh, now this Jake DeRoser was uh, a lot older than him, had raced as long as racing had been around, and he was like the Babe Ruth of motorcycle racing. He was legendary, you know. He dressed in a black outfit, and he was pretty cocky, and he was real charismatic, and he liked to brag, and he most of the time he'd back it up. Uh, but uh, Balky wasn't, he didn't, he didn't really, wasn't that impressed with him. He just, he didn't think about it. He was young, and he thought he could handle anybody. Uh, he lost his first race, believe it or not, against DeRocher, and it was it was DeRocher uh, kicked him, <laughs> like pushed him, almost caused him to wreck. And uh, so it was it was a, a little bit later at the same track at, at Agriculture Park, I think it's in New Jersey, during a practice. Uh, Blake had a crash. He got hurt. Um, he. He didn't know what happened. He come around the track pretty fast. Uh, he uh, was was looking at his motorcycle, working on trying to work out something on the motorcycle. And the next thing he knew, he had hit something. He went over his handlebars. Um, he was in a coma for three days. Uh, and that was his first real accident. It, it broke his ribs, his collarbone. He had a concussion. And uh, he didn't know he di- he didn't know what happened when he come come to. His girlfriend was there with him, and she told him, she said, well, there was two or three young boys, and one of them ran out on the track and said, you hit him. And oh. Balky asked her, said, well, has, is he okay? And she said, no. She said, I'm sorry, but he was killed. And his response was, oh, my God. Wow. So it took him some time to heal, obviously physically, but it also took him some time to heal emotionally. Yeah. That really bothered him a lot. He never saw the kid. He didn't know. He didn't. He never knew what he hit. But at the same time, he felt responsible for that, and that that's one of the things that that, that haunted him as long as he lived. Uh, when the Indianapolis track was built at, at what we know now as the Indy, where the Indy 500 is uh, is located, that started uh, Brian in March of 1909. And uh, you know how many guys worked on that track? Now that's a two and a half mile oval. Now it's not boards. Never was boards. A uh, bunch. Well, uh, it they had some type of a cinder finish 
on that track that did not work very well. Uh, but 500 laborers, 300 mules, <laughs> 300 mules. They were dumping stuff and dragging stuff. And, and, uh, and the track was not really first built for racing. It was for testing cars. There was a lot of car companies in Indiana in that area. And they needed a place to get out off private roads and just get out and try things and so forth. So part of that reasoning for building that wasn't just racing. It was for other things. But being the enterprising people they were, they wanted to u- make utilize it for all it was worth. They had a lot of money invested there. Oh, yeah. So in 1909, they had a, the grand opening. Now, they were not racing cars here at this time. The first Indy 500 wasn't until 1911. So, it, so they started the Federation of American Motorcyclists. They would hurl their first big premier event would be at Indianapolis. Now, here's the problem. <laughs> they had like 14 races scheduled. So I assume that there were like eliminations in two right. or three days, Heats and then you and have the main deal like they do today. Yeah. Well, uh, when they got there and the guys got out on the track, and I mean, I don't know how this happens, but they thought the track was way too dangerous. The surface, the type of stuff they put on the surface was puncturing the tires. And it was, and, and, and they thought it was, was just too dangerous. So they, now this doesn't sound like a realistic thing, but this is what they did. They raced, they changed the races from 14 to seven in a one day event instead of a two day event of 14 races. They just cut it to a one day event. But they kept insisting on having this race because they had advertised it so yeah. much. Okay. And they had people in the, you know, in the stands waiting to see a race. So, well, the first race, there was two, two, two bikes went down, two drivers hurt. Uh, it didn't go well for Balky. He uh, slowed down. He he just couldn't go fast on that track. And he said, "Well, you know, rather than get hurt, uh, I'd rather finish third or fourth and just slow down because he knew that if he pushed it, that he would probably blow a tire, and that could be that could be fatal." Yeah. Um, of course, that's a big track, and you know I have been around it now, yeah. and it is. I mean, you the speeds would be as far, all the bike would do basically. Uh, and, you know, uh, the first car race, Ray Haroon won that, driving the Marmon Wasp. And Brian, he didn't try to go fast. Now, this is what surprised people. The average speed, I think, of that race was like 80 miles an hour, or the average top speed. Huh. And he figured out if he slowed down to 70 miles an hour, that his tires would last a lot longer. He wouldn't spend as much time in the pits, and he could go farther than, and faster than they could going faster by changing more tires. And that's how his strategy won the race. Plus, he didn't have a driving mechanic because he put a mirror in his car, and his car was lighter. Wow. So that's a little bit indie history. Uh, in 1910, uh, Charles uh, Balky wins race after race. Uh, he had broken every amateur speed record from 1 to 10-mile distance. Unreal. Think about that. I'll say that again. He had broken every amateur speed record from one to a 10-mile distance. I don't know of anybody that's ever accomplished that in racing. That's crazy. Yep. Um, January 1911, he gets married to his beloved Snooks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, it, it's, it's funny how they, uh, they had a short, sweet, uh, evidently they were very much in love, uh, and I had her name somewhere, and Elizabeth, uh, I'm sorry, I missed it somewhere. But anyway, um, 
she was she was right by his side all the time. They had a really nice wedding. Her family put up a great reception, and they had just a. He said, "I'm the luckiest man in the world." Said, "I got a wonderful wife, wonderful beautiful wife, and a and a wonderful family to go along with it." So he was a very happy man. Uh, he came a member uh, a little bit later that year of the Indian Motorcycle Team. Now his old nemesis Jack DeRoser, who they did not like one another at all, his arch rival. Uh, along with another driver, Ray Seymour, were the Indian team. So this 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 is getting more getting to be more uh, sophisticated as we go. These this these manufacturers kind of remind you of NASCAR today. Yeah. Uh, and the thing about uh, Balky is that he could sell tickets, sell, and he also could sell motorcycles. He was very charismatic, very well liked. He had. He, he presented himself well in front of people, and that's what got him the job. Now, Jake DeRocher, not so much. And DeRocher was very jealous of him. And uh, DeRocher had went over into Europe, and they separated him. They, they, they uh, sent DeRocher over into Europe, and he ran a European circuit over there and left uh, Charles Balky here in the States and, uh, and Ray Seymour to run here. Okay. So that was one of the ways they solved the problem. Now, in March 1912, when DeRocher gets back from, uh, from overseas, uh, it was bound to happen. They were going to have the big grudge race. You know, this was well publicized in all the newspapers. Oh, yeah. Sold tickets. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they had learned how to market this thing. Oh, yeah. And I think the animosity between Balky and DeRocher was real. I don't think that's fake at all. Um, so at the L.A. Mot- uh, Metrodome in California, a crowd of about 9,000 people came to see it. Um, uh, as the race starts, uh, Blake and Drosher get it before it. I mean, actually, before they even get racing, they get in a fist fight <laughs> on the track. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had to be separated. And the crowd went wild, and believe it or not, that was really popular. They said, "Man, this is going to be a real success when these guys hate one another enough for fist fight." You know? Yeah, they know the money well spent. Yeah. So as the race progressed, both drivers were uh, were, you know, they were going at it. I, I don't know how best to say it. They were, you know, they were just uh, right at one another. Both of them very, very skilled, very good drivers. Well, as you probably would imagine, they collided. They hit. Uh, and unfortunately, DeRocher got the worst end of it. Um, he broke his legs so bad that they said it was right in front of the grandstand. The worst thing was, you know, people sitting right there and seeing every detail of it. And his one of his legs was broken so bad that his thigh bone was sticking through the skin, and it was just a gross, yeah, gross sight. Him, you know, just you can imagine. Uh, he he suffered. Just about every part of his body was, you know, they said there wasn't two inches of his body that wasn't skinned, burnt, cut, or punctured, broken, or something. Um, and about one year later, he he went through two operations. A year later, he was going through a third operation because of this wreck and dies on an operating table. Wow, it's sad. It, the uh, owner of uh, Indian Motorcycles then... They said it affected him. Uh, it was Nordstrom. I can't remember his name. It affected him greatly. He began to look at this and say, "Now wait a minute. What's you know? What's this worth? Is this worth what we're 
what we're doing here and the lives that we're causing. Um, Charles, he wasn't severely hurt, uh, but his successes and winnings started really piling up in 1911, 12, and by 1913, he was rolling. Uh, in 1913, we talked about the trophy that was in it in the attic of the house in Bourbon County. Yeah, that was when he won the Elgin Road Course um, in Elgin, Illinois. He went 29 laps, and believe it, the average speed was 55 miles an hour. But you know, on a road course, you have some really tight hairpin turns and right. so forth. So that's not that you know probably speeds there were as high as they were anywhere at some points of the race. Now. There's always, I guess, a day of reckoning when you take a lot of chances. Um, you know, the odds start to build up against you. In June 1914, Charles and his wife were in Chicago, and he was practicing for his next race. Uh, there were a couple guys out on the track, and there was there were, the track wasn't open to the public or anything. This was just them out practicing the day before, and. Um, they were, uh, there was a, some mules and some equipment out there rolling the track. Now, I would assume that this one would be a dirt track. And I didn't say, but I assumed that. I don't know why you'd have mules and rollers out on a board track. So <clears throat> there were two racers ahead of him, and they were going about 40 miles an hour. And a lot of times, motorcycles, when they first start up, especially racing motorcycles, before they warm up good and the pistons swell, they, they smoke a lot. And that was the case here, and the dust and the smoke and everything. And evidently, he did not know that there was a track crew out there. So he was behind these two guys, and he was going maybe 50, 60 miles an hour, or 70 miles an hour. No, I think he was going 70 miles an hour. And he was closing in on this roller and couldn't see it. He hit the roller, uh, and... Uh, they said they estimated it had to be at least 60 to 70 miles an hour. Mm. Um, his wounds were horrific. Uh, he was taken to a hospital. His wife got to the hospital. And uh, at 23 years old, Charles Balky breathed his last. Um, and what's neat, um, in the scrapbook, for all these stories and all this, there's a lot more to this, folks, that we have time for in this podcast. But in the last page of the scrapbook there's some dried flowers and it says simply from the funeral of Charles Balky well that's a great Balky Balky. that's a great story hey thank you for being part of Uncommon History Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode and don't forget you can follow us on Facebook YouTube, Instagram Twitter Uncommon History is produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford.